Welcome to this week's edition of Comscore's podcast, Many Screens, Big Picture, with Paul Dergarabedian. I'm Paul Dergarabedian for Many Screens, Big Picture, Comscore's new podcast, and I'm honored to be having a conversation with Chris Aronson. Chris is the president of domestic distribution for Paramount Pictures. Chris, it's great to have you here today. Good to be with you, Paul. Thank you so much. So we're in unprecedented times. We're going to talk a lot about that. But the, the first thing I want to get into is what I like to ask everyone is, how did you get into this business? What was your journey to where you are now? Did you have a love of film at an early age? Were you, did you have family members who love film and exposed you to the, the, the glorious world of filmmaking and filmmakers? What was your path to where you are now in the world of film and entertainment? Well, let's see. I think as far as getting into this business, I probably drew the short straw somewhere. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I did not. Uh, I, I took a couple of film classes, you know, starting in high school. I, I had a love of movies, but never really considered, you know, as I was growing up that that's that I wanted to be in this business. I did meet someone along the way, probably high school or thereabout who had been in the film distribution business for many years. And he had said, you'd really like this business and you'd, you'd be really good at it. And, you know, which to me was like career. Huh? Like, <laughs> Wait, how old are you at this point? You're in high, high school. school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's like I really didn't have that well thought out career path. And it sounded like, even though I'd been working since I was 12 years old and always was a, was a go-getter and whatnot, it just like, I wasn't thinking career path at that point in time, but fast forward probably six years later. And I hadn't talked to this person in a long time and I was out of college and I was in a management training program and he said, you know, we may have, we caught up and all of that. And he said, look, there may be, an opportunity in the branch office. And this was when every major studio had branch offices in cities of any size. Um, and I think when I joined, eventually joined Universal, that we had 28 offices, I think, across the U.S. And um, he said, there may be an opening for a booker. Would you be interested? And, and I heard the word booker and I, I thought it was like some illegal betting operation. I, I had no idea what a booker was. Well, I think a lot of people who may be listening to this won't know. Can you explain? Yeah, a booker is basically is the one who was responsible for the trafficking prints, getting an actual, in those days, 35 millimeter, occasionally 70 millimeter, uh, the actual prints transported and shipped from one theater to another or from a depot to the theater. And we had these giant booking books that would keep track of every single film and where it was by day and by play week. But sometimes you had, uh, you know, a weekend only. And it, it, there was this whole shorthand for how you did it. And if you didn't do it right, the head booker was going to be very upset with you and Anyway, it was uh, it's 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 funny now here in 2020 to be talking about that because it is from way yesterday. It's, it's like a ledger, right? Like you're you're exactly. literally writing yeah. with a, probably a pencil because you so you could erase stuff. And well, and no when digital the play, footprint, <laughs> right? And when the play week ended, you had a red pencil mark that showed now it's over. 
anyway, and each print had a number attached to it. So you really did have an inventory of where every single numbered print was at any given time. So anyway, that started my career in the film business. I was a geography major. I graduated from Cal with a geography major and people always kind of scratch their heads and go, hmm, yeah, geography, film distribution. Sure, that makes perfect sense. And I said, well, you'd be surprised because a sub-discipline of geography is cartography and map making. And it was very helpful to be able to, particularly when I had a territory that I'd never been to before, when it came to trafficking those prints and wonder, you know, and being able to figure out, could you get it there in time? And I mean, a lot of this was obviously it was a 365 day a year business. So you had winter to deal with. And if you had to get a print over a mountain range in the middle of January, you had to figure out when to time it with the bus or the truck line, be able to get over the mountain in time to get to that theater Anyway, it was Who knew uh, it, those two things would dovetail perfectly together. Yeah, they, they really did. <laughs> and it was and it was always fun, Paul, to meet somebody from, you know, hey, Paul, where are you from? And you go, oh, I'm from uh, a, a little town in Washington state. You 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 wouldn't know it. And I go, try me. And you'd say uh, Moses Lake. And they go, oh, yeah, how's the Lake Theater in Moses Lake? And they look at you like. <laughs> Oh my God, like how could you possibly know this little little theater in this little town that I grew up in? And I said, Well, that's what I do. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So, that's amazing. So, yeah. In those days, every every studio, as they said, had an office and they had a depot, you know, where they would have these massive piles of orange and, and gray cans of film. And they were heavy. How and many I'll tell cans- you. Go ahead. A film for a for a for a feature film. How many cans of film are we talking about? Two cans. Usually five reels was was about right, but I'm going to tell you a 70 millimeter story because, and it's sort of timely since Dune is uh, scheduled for release later this year. David Lynch's Dune, which I believe was 1984, was a universal release, and I, I, like I said, I was a, I, I think I had been promoted to a sales rep at at that point in time. But I lived in Marin County and we had to get a 70 millimeter print up to a theater in Marin County. And since I lived there, I volunteered to take it. And in those days I drove a Datsun B210. I remember those. Do you remember those? Okay. I only remember it because it was one of the lightest cars you'll ever want to be in. And I go to the depot and I back in and they loaded this 70 millimeter print and my car. Were you doing a wheelie? Like like that. (laughs) I was scared to death that I, I mean, this print was so heavy and it clearly affected my car. And I was worried that I'd even get across the Golden Gate Bridge to get it to Marin County to get it to the theater. But yeah. And I think that the, you know, the tires were, you know, about three inches wide and, uh, but oh my god! Who, but but that sh- it just illustrates you know how heavy a 70, 70 millimeter print was and and Dune I think was it had to have been over two hours I, I don't remember I think it was yeah. two hours and twenty minutes so that made an you know an additional reel on top of what would normally be so and, yeah and, it was crazy and the cameras the cameras were huge right the. I think there were Mitchell cam, whatever they were. I'm not an expert in that, but I know the whole process gets bigger from front to back. Every part of that. Yep. 
that my first job was at Universal Pictures. That was my first foray into film distribution. And and frankly, I loved it. I had uh, I fell in love with the business. It was the business side of the entertainment business, which I've always, you know, been fascinated by business and, and every aspect of business. And in certain respects, the film distribution business is no different than any other. And in every respect, it is completely different than any other. And and I can honestly say both of those things, and they're they're not at odds with each other. Um, but when I left Universal, I just I, my career path at that time was how can I learn more? I just wanted to learn more, I, and I've always been that way. I was that way in school. I just had this you know insatiable appetite for knowledge in it. It wasn't like, oh, I want to, you know, I aspire to get to here. I just wanted to learn more. So that started, uh, I went to work for New World, which was one of the leading independent distributors at the time. I absolutely remember New World. Yep. And left New World and went to Vestron and moved to LA and ran basically the Western uh, half of the US. Again, enlarging my territory and just learning more and more and more about the business. Then I had a brief stay at um, Columbia Pictures, which then right before I left became Sony Pictures. Um, and then I spent about 10 years in exhibition and I moved back to the Bay Area and I, I got in the film buying exhibitor side and, and really got to learn that side of the business. And then after 10 years of that, I came back to L.A. and uh, worked for a short-lived independent studio and then went to a, a little company called Rentrack. You may have yeah. heard of it. Yes, um, I have. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk a lot more about that in, in a little bit. Gotcha. Uh, left Rentrack and went to MGM uh, as uh, general sales manager. And then from MGM went to Fox in the same role uh, in 2005 and was there until, um, well, I guess it was just last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then joined Paramount in uh, December of last year. And, uh, and that's where I am. So it seems to me that you're, you're a uh, inquisitive person. And by just pursuing that knowledge within the business, it just took you on different paths to, to where you are now. That is true. And, and, it, and it seems that having that background in exhibition is really a, a valuable asset for someone who is now in distribution. I would think that those, the knowledge of those, not just the knowledge of it, but having been a buyer and booker back in the days when you were, you had competition for different films. uh, You had those zones where you couldn't book a film. I mean, there was real, and there's still a nuance in science to that, but understanding that. How about um, bidding? uh, Oh yeah. I mean, my, my old boss, when I first started uh, John Creer, he's telling me about blind bidding and all. And like you in high school, I'm like, what is that? Like, like, I didn't know what that was. And it's, it's fascinating for anyone who's listening to go research this stuff because this was a real art, right? Chris, it was ruthless, but there was a aspect of negotiation that you had to have. And you really had to kind of, I would think, predict, what the big film was going to be. Cause if you chose incorrectly, you could be stuck with the, a film that <laughs> may not perform and you're where you booked it in that town. And, and so if you, if you have any thoughts on that, basically in those days, Paul, you, if, if you had a theater, a theater would basically declare a trade zone. And if two theaters were in 
close enough proximity where the studio decided that they were in substantial competition with each other, they would only play one theater. So here were these two theaters, and sometimes there were three, just to be clear, um, within the same trade zone that was uh, uh, honored and acknowledged by the distributor. So, so the distributor, each film would say, put it out for bid, and they would ask for minimum terms, play weeks, advance slash guarantee guarantee means you don't get it back um <laughs> I, and then and then in those days before the advent of uh, performance scales you would you would offer film rental by play week and and again when it was played straight the the studio would would get their bids and then determine which was the bid that would make them the most money and award the film according. It was a gamble, right? It's a it's a bit of it was a, very much a gamble because yeah. if you guessed wrong and you thought it was you thought it was ET and it turned out to be Paul and Chris's great adventure, <laughs> you you could lose a lot of money. Yeah, and and can you uh, again? There's some people out there may not know what film rental is. Film rental is something that is actually a, a concept that once you get it, you get it, but. Most people, when they think of rental, they think of video rentals, particularly back in the day. But film rental, can you explain? I'm I'm picking your brain out because you know all this stuff. Yeah, what, I mean, it's, it's essentially it's the it's the licensing fee because a, a theater or theater chain does not own the content. The studio owns the content, and so when a theater plays a motion picture, you're basically licensing that film for a certain uh, predetermined period of time, and the tariff, if you will, for licensing that film is a share of the box office, which is determined basically on a week by week basis because your grosses start bigger in the beginning. And as the picture ages, the grosses get smaller as it goes down. But the studio keeps a certain percentage of that and the exhibitor gets to keep the rest. Right. And it's a sliding scale as time goes on. But doesn't it ultimately wind up at about 50-50? Is that correct or is that a mis- it's, it's close enough on big films it gets weighted towards uh the studio um on average you know on, on everything else it's it's somewhere around there it, you're close enough it varies picture by picture but it's, it's and, really and back in the back in the day so to speak i recall when i look at the numbers when you look at what a wide release was even in the early 90s but especially in the 80s a wide release was like a thousand theaters correct it, it's oh, not yeah. like where you you put these films out in four thousand plus locations, not screen, which means even more screened, right? Because there's right. multiple screens in a theater in a location. But the business has certainly changed in that way, without a doubt. Changed a lot. Yeah, I mean, if you go back and look at Star Wars, which was the highest grossing film in 1977. It was a thousand some odd theaters. <laughs> yeah. Didn't it open like 25 theaters on a Wednesday and then they expanded that, it out? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Was, it, it, Star Wars was the original platform release. That's, you know what? You're right. Little art film. Yep. Which actually then they didn't know what, what that was going to become. We Nobody knew. And I remember when Alien played in Westwood and there was a line around the block for that movie. It was sort of the, the opposite of E.T. <laughs> it's like right. this, you know, space opera, R-rated, very intense, and Ridley Scott, of course. Uh, but yeah, those were those were interesting times. Although today, a lot of those things are still the same, right? But there's there's not a physical print, 
There's a DCP, a digital print. They're probably not as heavy as those film cans, of course. And the B210 whole dynamic could handle a whole bunch of DCPs. The B210, which, by the way, was a Datsun, the precursor yep. to Nissan, right? Yep. yep. So that's really interesting. Well, I think that that by you having that that strong footing in terms of uh, exhibition and distribution, I want to talk about Rentrack because Rentrack is really interesting. And of course, full disclosure, I I started at, at Rentrack, uh, which is now Comscore. About six and a half years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. But Rentrack is the gold standard for collecting box office around the world from theaters. Can you talk about how your background and, and your understanding of the business led you to the creation, really, of Rentrack and how important that is? Yeah, box office data collection is the lifeblood of the distribution um, industry. And Let's see, I guess it was in 2001, Paul, I think. There was one game, it had only been one game in town. It was uh, EDI, Entertainment Data Inc. So uh, I had originally uh, set this up with Tribune Media Services, which is a division of the Chicago Tribune. And that lasted, well, I, I should say, when I joined them and I had the idea for what we wanted to accomplish, they thought that they already had the infrastructure in place to do that and that it just needed to be designed, which was very exciting to me. Unfortunately, it's like buying a, buying a car and then you, you take it home and you open the hood and you go, well, where's the engine? Because it's really hard to drive a car without an engine. It's a good analogy. So then began this, you know, sort of design template. And I don't want to bore you with the details, but after nine months, TMS decided this wasn't for them. So we had labored long and hard months and months and months of design. And we really had the the blueprint then, if you will. I felt at the time there were two ways to go. One, do it on my own and raise the capital to do it which in hindsight would have been a really good thing to do um, or try to find an existing entity that could execute what we had blueprinted. And that's where Rentrack came in. And Rentrack um, had been in the video data collection business working for all the studios, by the way, for quite a number of years. Um, and they also on the rental side had a POS system where they gathered rental and sales data from, I know this sounds like a long time ago, all of the video stores that were all, you know, across the, the world right. for that matter. So I, we met with them, said, look, we think what you have can transfer to the theatrical business and the rest, as they say, is history. Cause it, it really did. Um, the, the um, I guess it was the CIO at the time, executed it beautifully, and we built a very robust system. So we built it customer-friendly. So, so they felt that they had a hand in design, and then they saw the results, and we turned it around pretty quickly. Um, and then, of course, we started innovations like getting hourly data, you know, for certainly, which is valuable for opening days, and as a 
prognostication tool to try to estimate where your picture was going to come in. And, and that's- then all of the other enhancements like release calendars and, and the school calendar was a very important element of, of what we did. And, and, and there you go. And it's still, well, I mean, in, in these times right now, it's still vitally important. Uh, we're able to look at historical data uh, as we speak a year ago, uh, this weekend, uh, Avengers Endgame opened to over $350 million just in North America. And that's really, I mean, that that gives us that historical perspective. I think what Rentrack did also is they brought that kind of collection into the modern era, right? Because I wasn't it that there were fo- people would call in the grosses? Were there- oh, my God. Did you, you've- <laughs> they would call in or overnight? You would, you would call them? I mean, I, I, I just from archives and speaking of Star Wars, because Bruce Snyder, who was my boss at Fox until he retired, gave this to me. Uh, and it was basically his Star Wars gross sheets that oh. were all filled in by hand because they would call theaters. And of course, Star Wars became such a phenomenon because, you know, it, it either stayed the same or grew. And so it, it was a phenomenon. And you can see all of these handwritten numbers That's you know, week after week stuff. after week. That's Holy Grail stuff right there. That ledger right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. But then, but Rentrack, uh, when I started there, I remember, you know, I've been a box office uh, aficionado and, and I've been in this business almost 30 years now. But I remember going to Rentrack, getting into the system, our now Comscore, mm-hmm. Rentrack, and it's just brilliant. And and the way that it puts all the data together in a way where, like you said, the release calendar, you've got your all the box office historically, dailies. Uh, some of that is studio reported, which is the only data that is shared publicly. But then there's a lot of really great information and data that studios use. I'm sure Paramount, uh, obviously, uh, you're looking at those numbers all the time. And I think that's a good segue to my next question is, as we know, and it's it's, it's obvious at this point, movie theaters are closed. And we're all at home right now and streaming is doing quite well because it's really the only game in town in the home as is your home kitchen. Cause you can't go <laughs> out to a restaurant right now. And it just seems to me that the movie going experience will be even more appreciated once things are safe, the all clear is given and people are able to go back to those experiences. We actually, I've been talking to a lot of people. We have nostalgia for the movie theater. It's been three months. What? Or Wait, not even three months. It's been two months. People are enjoying streaming and I love streaming. I use it all. I mean, I love that stuff. I love all the content. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's there 24 hours a day. The buy-in's very low. I just sit on my couch and hit the button and watch that. It's wonderful. Uh, but going to a movie theater is something I think we're all like pining away for. There's, I think there's going to be a pent up demand, but, and I know you at Paramount, you have an amazing slate of films coming up. How do you balance when to go, when to open, how long to wait? These are very heady. I know it's, we can't necessarily crystal ball because it changes every day, but maybe I'll make it more open-ended. What do you think the future holds long-term and, and short, particularly short-term? And how do you think this will manifest itself down the road and how people respond to going to the movie theaters, how they feel about going to the movies? 
Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm very optimistic that, that people will have have a large hunger for out-of-home entertainment. And I think as long as the exhibition community makes it a compelling offer in every sense of the word, assures the public that it's a clean and hygienic environment and it's a safe environment. And whether that's utilizing social distancing, which they, I believe, will be more than prepared to do, then I think it's merely a, a, a function of the movies, Paul. You know, if, yeah. if there is compelling content, I think people will want to see that. I, I really do. There is particularly, I mean, to echo what you said, particularly after being in a shelter-in-place environment where your only entertainment is is on your home TV, there's nothing like being in that in that movie theater environment and seeing something that can only be seen in the theater, you know, with the great big picture and, and, and great sound and, and all of that. I just think that, that people will come back as long as there's content to be seen. And I think there's going to be challenges, you know, I mean, we have to convince the public that, you know, it's safe, it's clean. Um, and this is something that you will feel good about doing. And theaters are in the hospitality business before this. I mean, they, they're, they, they're very good at creating a great environment. Generally, though, we think of the amenities, the food, the, the martinis they may have available, the sight, the sound, the, the whole experiential part. That, I think, is dialed in by most operators very, very well. But now I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be... All those things will be in play, but then on top of it is this layer of hospitality, but entrenched in a mindset or part of a mindset, and that includes safety and health, which is probably something we should always have been doing anyway, in a sense, just for your own personal hygiene and health. But this just creates an awareness of that that I think is heightened to a level we've never seen before. Uh, and I and let's just for the sake of the the next question that. Theaters are up and running. Everything's fine. People have warmed up to the idea and they're ready to start seeing those brand new films in theaters, even with social, a little bit of social distancing still in place. What are the, I want to talk to you about your movies in particular. You have some really cool films on the slate. What, what are you, what are the films you're most excited about on your slate and the, and the filmmakers you're working with on those films who also, I'm sure you've talked to can't wait to get those movies on the big screen. Yeah, no, no question about that. I mean, our first movie out will be uh, SpongeBob Sponge on the Run. Um, mm -hmm. And that will be on August 7th, uh, which is a, a, just a perfect movie for these times, to be honest with you, because it's all about friendship and, and teamship and something that, you know, I think as we've endured this global pandemic, uh, we see what, what humans can do when they band together and, and have that bond of friendship. So, um, and also families want to go together to the movies. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And then scheduled on Memorial Day, uh, sorry, Labor Day, we have um, a, a, a part two of a of a little film called A Quiet Place, and it is A Quiet Place Part Two. Um, <laughs> and and this, by the way, as I, I know you recall, was on the runway, on the ramp, ready to go. Because uh, our release date was March 20, right. and um, and the world as we know 
That's when it stopped, right? That's when when it stopped. Yeah. So so that's where we've landed. We think it's a perfect ending to summer. Uh, And it's it's a big, big, big movie. um, Well, the first film was just so innovative. I was talking to someone about this earlier, how meta that film was, the way you had to literally, it's like an interactive movie in the sense that you had to be really quiet. (laughs) You didn't want to disrupt people around you. It was such a, almost a a commentary on going to the movie theater, the movie in theater experience in that way. And it's, it's, it was so uh, clever in that way. And then you go home and you think about it, you're like, wow, I was being extra quiet. I wasn't trying to chew popcorn so loud. And I think even like Alamo uh, had quiet foods or something yeah. where you would disrupt people. So, And that movie was very well reviewed. And it is among those, you know, horror films, this could be a whole other half hour, is that horror films used to be like the Rodney Dangerfield of films. They couldn't get no respect. And now you have, and, and it's almost like to even call a movie like Quiet Place a horror film doesn't, I mean, I love horror films, don't get me wrong. But it is so much more than that. And I can't wait for this new one. And just, uh, I think it's going to be a, a huge hit and a perfect movie for that time frame. Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, it really elevated the horror genre, if you will. And it was, it bridged that horror and suspense, but in a completely different way, as you mentioned. Um, from there, we go to Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7, which we're very excited about. And then we have Michael B. Jordan in. Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. And I've seen bits and pieces of Without Remorse, and Michael B. has never been better. He's uh, this is a, he's a, an amazing actor. He's in he's a movie star. Um, so so that's pretty exciting. Christmas. What can I say about Christmas? We we have Clifford the Big Red Dog in November, which is actually a very sweet family film. And then Christmas. I think I hear uh, Clifford in the background. That could be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just not my Clifford. Um, <laughs> December 18th, we have Coming to America, which is the sequel to the beloved Eddie Murphy classic, Arsenio Hall. The whole gang is back, and this promises to be the the comedy of the holiday season. And that is going to be amazing. Awesome. Love that. And then on December 23rd, we have this – small movie with a, an up and coming star that we expect big things from, you know, down the road. His name is Tom Cruise mm-hmm. and uh, Tom will be taking us on an unforgettable ride in Top Gun Maverick, which um, again, that was scheduled to be a late June release for us this, this summer. And what's the date now? It is December 23rd. So it'll be summer in December. It, oh, it will be, trust me. And <laughs> I've I've had the pleasure of seeing Maverick uh, two or three times now, and it it delivers on every single level possible, and just looks to be uh, you know a very very big film. This so, is uh, I think this is a huge one, Chris. This yeah. to me, and I remember seeing the first Top Gun first run in a movie theater. We knew Tom Cruise was Risky Business had come out, but I mean that was like wow, this guy's a a movie star. And I would assume in working with him on many movies over the years, you I'm sure he's a movie theater fanatic lover of the theatrical experience. It just seems like he's so keyed into every aspect of filmmaking, including the business side. Obviously he's a producer and he can fly planes and helicopters and He's just, I mean, some people, they're just, trust me, me, Paul, there's nothing that that man cannot do. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think we've seen that over and over. So yeah, you and you work with him. You're going to be working with him a, a lot. Yeah, more. I've gotten to know him over the last uh, four four months or so, and and you know he's truly a great collaborator, um, and and an innovator. And but he's he's just he's really exciting to work with and pushes the boundaries, but only in in a way that you know will enhance the 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 picture and the experience of the picture so and he just finds ways to reinvent himself and he's he's quite remarkable and he has quite a history with paramount and he has another little film after top gun we just uh you are you talking about mission mission impossible mission impossible Seven? yeah we actually just changed our release dates today to get our production order in line uh, so Mission Impossible 7, which will have a title, uh, will be opening on November 19th of uh, 21. 21. Yeah. And Mission Impossible 8, this will basically be a, a two-parter. Uh, we dated for November 4 of 22. The Mission Impossible movies are so kick-ass. They're just yeah. amazing. And everyone looks for that that big stunt that Tom's going to do. I, everyone loves those movies. Talk about a crowd pleaser that'll get people out to the theaters. But I think all these dates that you have are really good because you need enough time for this situation, the pandemic to resolve. But you also, in a sense, for films that you were going to open earlier, have to reintroduce them again, even though the marketplace knows of them. That is only going to increase the excitement level for people. So in other words, if we thought a movie was going to be a month from now, and now it's three or four months from now, it just makes that, you know, the waiting is the hardest part, I think, as Tom Petty said. But it's also... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and for, I think, uh, uh, movie lovers and film fans, the movies you have on your slate, the stars that you have, and I like the diversity of the slate. Yeah, it's not we do too. You know, it's really cool. You have the horror movies in there. You have the, uh, you know, the different, the suspense movies, the action movies. Seems you have a really great mix of upcoming films, Chris. And it's it's really exciting. I think it's just going to get people even more amped up. And look, a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think your movies are going to inspire people to go to the theater. When they go to the theater, they may get inspired to see other movies. It, I think it's good for every company and everyone, and by the way, good for streaming services down the road when these movies will eventually land on those platforms. So to me, once we get business back to business, it's going to be a very robust time, and I would be so bold, and I have a couple more minutes here. So I wanted to just talk to you about 2021, and is it too much to say it could be a huge comeback year for the industry? I think so. Given the level of uh, films out there and how interested I think people are going to be going into the movies, 2021 really is shaping up to be, even though 2020 will have an asterisk, so to speak, next to the numbers, 2021 looks like it could be just incredible. Again, assuming safety is restored and people feel safe and comfortable. What do you think about 2021? I agree 100%. I mean, if you just, you know, 
peruse the the release calendar as it exists right now. And I do think that the release calendar is very fluid um, and will continue to be. It's, it's the, This pandemic has really shifted everything around in a way that you have to be fluid. Yeah. But coming out of the holidays, which I think will be very big, got some nice titles in January. You've got a Marvel title in February. There's a nice sprinkling of family product in there. The Spring Corridor right now has a Pixar movie, it has Ghostbusters and Morbius, it, you know, yeah. it has, and, and then you have Fast 9 in April, and then leading into summer, you know, there's, summer is, is just loaded right now with, with a lot of really exciting films. Do you think the marketplace uh, will ex- expand to accommodate those films, given the pent-up demand that is building now? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it's that it's not pretty orderly right now. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. I think the marketplace is set up well. Yeah, um, we'll see if all of these titles that are dated now will will make their dates because those are still, even though it's a year away, production schedules are very intense, and particularly for big VFX-driven films. It's like working a jigsaw puzzle, a giant jigsaw puzzle. It seems like despite the size of a Paramount and the number of films that you guys are pretty nimble, that you're able, this is what you guys do. It's, it's yeah. You, yeah. you weren't expecting this, but I mean, changes come and you have to adapt and move dates. And I think everyone realizes moving of dates right now doesn't mean a movie's in trouble. Exactly you know, right. In traditional times, people are like, whoa, movies moved its date, especially the closer it is to opening but right now, everybody understands you got to do what you got to do. No question about it. You know, and, and sometimes there's opportunities too. You know, we had we had Johnny Knoxville uh, and Jackass in March, and we said, you know what? I don't think there's anything more a bigger slice of Americana than Jackass on Fourth of July weekend. Yes. So, <laughs> boom! There we are. So you know, and we have a, a Chris Pratt. Uh, action sci-fi movie for July 23 right now. And then, you know, looking at, at, at the latter half of next year with Mission, uh, Babylon will we'll be uh, launching uh, limited at Christmas. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're pretty excited. Yeah, it's, it's a movie-goer film fan's delight next year. I think it's going to be an incredible year. I just have a couple more questions for you, Chris. And these are the fun ones that I say, I'm saving for the very end. First of all, trivia question part. No trivia questions at this point, although that could happen. No, so you are a legend at CinemaCon. Your events, your presentations at CinemaCon are legendary. I've seen like an offsite movie. It seems you shot, and you're in a limo. That was really cool. Seeing you with the the full dancing girls and the. I mean, the whole chorus line coming down to the front of the uh, Caesar's Palace uh, and the Coliseum. What is that like, Chris? Because were you ever frightening as all get out? <laughs> you know, you seem unflappable. I mean, I do TV and all this stuff. If you told me I had to get up in front of the Coliseum at Caesar, I'd be like, oh, no, no way is that happening. But you just embrace that. Did you have drama training? Have you ever. <laughs> or was it just something you just took on with full gusto and, and went for it? Yeah, more the latter. I, I certainly have not had any formal training. Lord knows I would be disappointing the profession if I did. <laughs> um, but I will tell you, uh, and those shows that you referenced were 
always done on uh, Thursday morning. And after a long week at CinemaCon, but knowing that it was showtime on Thursday morning, the last day of the convention, not always the easiest. No, that's pretty brutal because I know, and for those who are listening, CinemaCon is the big movie convention in Las Vegas every year. Of course, this year, uh, it wasn't able to happen, obviously. I think 2021 could be the, the biggest CinemaCon ever because people are going to be just so excited about it and all the what's going on in the movie theaters at that point. But yeah, it's a long week. Some people get there on Saturday, Sunday. The convention officially ends on Thursday, and there's events. Well, I'll tell you, Chris, you, you, get a, you get a medal for being able to – because most people have – really been working very hard for those previous four days. And when I say working, I, I mean working. And uh, <laughs> But a lot of events, a lot of staying out late, just a lot going on. So to be able to do that with the way you've done it, I think is uh, pretty impressive. Because well, most we, people we, out. We, we never lost sight and won't lose sight of the fact that we're in the entertainment business. And if you can't entertain, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah, obviously it's all about the content, but doesn't mean that you we can't inject a little showmanship into presenting our content. I will tell you a funny little story. Yeah. Our final, final dress rehearsal was always at 6 a.m. the morning of the show. So the aforementioned, you've been there for four or five, six days. It's a grind. You're trying to limp to the finish line. And I show up for the year that we had Vanilla Ice. And he's he's already there with his dancing girls and whatnot. And then it comes time to rehearse our little duet. I remember which we, which we do. Yeah. And he goes, he looks at me and he goes, I got an idea. This is what I want to do. And right when you hit that mark, I'm going to do this handshake and I'm going to make it up right now. <laughs> and it was one of those. Yeah, right. Back eight, of the eight hand. Part you know, handshakes. Secret handshakes. I stood there and I looked at him. I said, is this a family podcast? Okay, we'll keep it clean. say whatever you want. Are you kidding me? (laughs) After umpteen rehearsals and we're like three hours from showtime and now you want to change the show? (laughs) And we did. And we pulled it off. I remember that. No, I had I had this this wig on and I had this uh, two-tone hair. It was hilarious. Oh, yeah, that's right. That is so cool. Well, Vanilla yeah, Ice is a real estate mogul, I guess, in Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's That's so. Cool. Anyway, he's a, he was a really nice guy. Uh, I think there's no business like show business. That and the uh, the Deadpool Jackman movie that we did probably the the highlights of that. Whole thing. Is, is that available anywhere? It's in my library. No, no, I want it on YouTube immediately. I, I, Not happening. <laughs> I knew you would say that. Now, last and most importantly, we're we're stuck at home. I want you to tell me the quickly the story of your favorite martini, how you found that martini, where you were, and how do you reckon? Are you a shaken, not stirred kind of guy? Are you a vodka guy, gin guy? Favorite martini? Go. Well, I, I will tell you that. Um, my favorite place to have a martini besides my home with my wife is Duke's in London. That is in London, correct. Yes. yes. Right around the corner from St. James Palace because the legendary Alessandro, who is the chief of the bar at Duke's, 
makes the most sublime martini ever. Duke's also happens to be, uh, was a favorite watering hole of Ian Fleming. Um, he of James Bond fame. So I am a, I don't really care between shaken and stirred, though I shake my own, okay? As far as vodka and gin, yes. <laughs> both. <laughs> yes to both. Yes. And that just depends on what mood I'm in, to be honest with you. Because, again, Alessandro has introduced me to some of the most sublime vodkas, usually s- small batch, uh, you know, very tightly manufactured, uh, both vodkas and gins. And he, 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 he speaks of spirits, to be honest with you, Paul, uh, the way a sommelier would, yeah. would speak of wine and yeah, tell you the subtleties and the differences, the essences, the flavors, and all of that. And it's, it's just a, it's a marvelous experience. Do you think we could get him to, to, to come on the show with us and demonstrate? Absolutely. He's that would be cool. a, Alessandro? Alessandro. Alessandro yep. at Dukes. In, uh, if you're listening, we, we would love to have you on the show because, you know, we're going to be, this is many screens, big picture. That means we can do a lot of different things here, Chris. Without but a I, doubt. I love that. I, I want to have a martini with you in person when we can, because I know you make the best martini ever, the homemade martini. And I, I can't yeah. wait to enjoy that experience with you, Chris. I really appreciate you being on the podcast today for ComScore, and it really means a lot. Be safe, be well, and thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Paul, and I look forward to that martini. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.